Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. In previous episodes, we've looked at what was going on with Disney in the 70s and mid-80s, in what is known as the Dark Ages. Dark because not only were they not at the top of the box office when it came to children's entertainment, but also because the material was jet black. Years previous had included movies like Something Wicked This Way Comes and Watcher in the Woods. But 1985 was the year of The Black Cauldron, which is a pretty spooky rewatch. This was a trend going on not only with Disney, but across the board with children's entertainment. And today we're going to look at two movies, one made by Disney, that upset children deeply in 1985, myself included. But first, why were these 80s movies for kids so dark, like across the board? <laughs> I think that the, the truth is it's just the way kids' movies were through most of that era. Because yeah. I, I think partially... If you look at the, you know, the 70s kids movies that no one would ever watch ever again, like the Apple Dumpling Gang and stuff, <laughs> like, I don't think that stuff connected as much and seemed as important to people. And I think it's 70s in general. 70s movies were gritty. So then going into the 80s, um, I, I also think, interestingly, somebody pointed out that uh, a lot of franchises and thinking about that, the respected one like uh, Empire Strikes Back and uh, Wrath of Khan were fairly recent. And that was like, mm -hmm. yeah, the grit, the like stripped down gritty stuff was doing well. But I think all kids movies, like we're talking about two that freaked kids out. But I mean, there's also this year, there's the Goonies, which freaked a lot of kids out. There's the E.T. E so oh, scary. for sure. Yeah. Somebody, I can't even remember one of these movies. Oh, you know, you know what it was is a uh, follow that bird, which we'll get into. Part of it was they, they were like, we want a movie that younger kids can enjoy because they'd be too scared by E.T. Uh, but even like I think of Ewoks Battle for Endor, I'm pretty yeah, sure that movie yeah. starts with their family being slaughtered. Yep. Like, they, they, <laughs> no, <laughs> and, the, and the humans don't survive. Like those movies are nuts. But then you're also getting out of something like The Dark Crystal, which we're going to reference today with Return yeah, to Oz, yeah. right? Where it's like this was yeah. kind of the stuff that it, like. So this is also 1984 is the first year of PG-13, yeah. and 19, this is the following year after that. So like there is like this weird in between zone of what is a PG movie? Like um, Poltergeist is PG. Yeah. because they didn't have a PG-13. Well, I right? also think that there's, like, it's what we're seeing is the splitting of, which we've talked a bit about in the 70s, this this splitting of audiences into children. And this, this what we're talking about today, is very interesting because they're trying to hit a demographic, which I think is not hit that often, which is, like, very young children. But, yeah, it's this splitting of, like, separating your adults and your children and your teens. So, like, PG-13 was Spielberg, I think. You know, it's the Amblin stuff, too. Yeah. Like, trying to figure out that there's this this group of kids with money <laughs> who go to the movies all the time. Well, it was uh, Indiana like, Jones yeah. and the Temple of Doom. Mm -hmm. Yes, and Gremlins are, are the two... 
uh, that I believe maybe were before, or the uh, Gremlins is the first, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think Temple of Doom is the catalyst for yeah, it the because they were that, trying to figure yeah. out how to do it. Yeah, I did not like in Temple of Doom when I was little, and they ate the monkey. Oh yeah, I mean uh, <laughs> that uh, is both very racist yeah, and like, also. And now um, we all know that it's very racist. Uh, really I watched scary. that when I was when I was like way too young to see. I think I was three or four. It's a memory I have vividly. The reason being is that directly after we watched it, uh, my mother made tomato soup for us, and myself and my two cousins who had watched it were just staring at this bowl waiting for the eyeballs to pop up and she would not understand why we wouldn't eat anything didn't eat tomato soup for years (laughs) i feel like if you go to the the classic disney though too it's like the kids were scared when bambi's mother died yeah you know sleeping my first theatrical experience was the re-release of bambi sure uh which my grandmother took me to and i do have a vivid memory of it and uh, I lost my shit. I, w- I went into full like hysterics when the mom dies. Had to be like dragged out of the theater. Wasn't be- obviously no cell phones, so there was no one to pick us up. So it's just me in a movie theater for an hour and a half, screaming, and my <laughs> poor grandmother. Like that. Yeah. That is the you know that is the heritage of kids born in the eighties. That oh, actually yeah. happened to my sister as well. I went with my sister, and one of my mom's friends took us to a movie, and it was the last movie she ever took us to because my sister cried the entire time and gently sat there saying, "Mama." Mama, yeah. over and over yeah, like I, I don't want to find out at such a young age that the ultimate villain is humans. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that the ultimate villain is humans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and then we're going to see this in both of these films today. Is like that, and what what topics can children handle, right? Because I think we're going to look into Fall That Bird. Yeah, is dealing with a very large topic that I don't know yeah. if it handles quite. Oh, right. I would say that I think both of these are are. I think it, it, we could say they're pushing a topic that is in, both to pushing topics that are incredibly complex. Yeah. And I don't think either of them quite nails it, which Agreed. is part of their legacy. <laughs> and why, why you just feel so uncomfortable watching both of them, even as an adult being like, oh, my God. And I will no say wonder. that I think that both of them are tackling thoughts so complicated i don't know how you nail yeah. it it's not like yeah, i can no, point no to a movie has that done it successfully does it. Yes. Yeah. agreed yeah. all right well let's get into return to oz because i know with both these movies we got a lot to talk about today so if you asked most north american kids who grew up in the 80s which movie spooked them the most i am sure very many of them would say return to oz because this movie is Wild, And I'm sure a lot of people have asked the question, why would Disney put forward this take on the Oz stories? Well, an Oscar-winning sound editing veteran and buddy of Spielberg and Lucas, Walter Murch approached Disney for his directorial debut, a passion project he'd always had, to make a film version of the remaining Frank L. Baum Oz books he loved as a child. Now, Disney already owned the rights to most of the books, and Walter had already written the screenplay for The Black Stallion. So they paired him with a producer who knew their way around animatronics and puppets. Star Wars and Dark Crystal's Gary Kurtz, and in 1980 said, have at her, and thus returned to Oz. And then, like so many passion projects, it got weird. Cam, were you traumatized <laughs> by this one as a child? Did you see this? Uh, you know what? I don't think I, I saw it till a little later. The thing that was interesting to me is this movie was one that I had a bunch of stickers for mm. it, and I never <laughs> knew what they were, you know? <laughs> So I like liked TikTok, but I never really saw the movie till later in my life. You didn't know the non-canonical Wizard of Oz characters from the no, books you know what? I, the MGM I, film didn't focus. Listen, on? if you wanna, if you want me to get into it, I will tell you that I, uh, I feel like a 
big failure of this movie is it's not willing to commit to the trans narrative of Ozma of Oz because I, I love the Oz books. Uh, but yeah, Mombi's whole thing is that she forces a girl to be a boy yeah. uh, magically. And the boy was Ozma all along and the trans triumph in L. Frank Baum's literature is important. Because this is two books mushed together. Yes. It's interesting to see what they choose and what they don't. As much as I am an Oz fan, I can absolutely appreciate that you need to mush these two books if you want Dorothy. Yeah in the Ozma stuff. And the Ozma stuff has all the cool guys like Jack Pumpkinhead and TikTok uh, is really good in it. So it's like, the I get it. The, yeah, the wheelies. Don't like yeah, it. Yeah. Don't wheelies. like it. Nope. <laughs> and I believe, I believe both the Gnome King and Mombi are, are like significant in it. So it's like, I get it. I, I kind of get it, but I do kind of hate that Ozma is her, her coolness is, is removed. Uh, but anyway, the two, to quickly go through the plot of this, Thank which you. is, uh, you know, as confusing as a, an Oz thing usually is, uh, like most of them, uh, Dorothy is now back in Kansas. We we're more or less led to believe that this is the Dorothy plot-wise, at least, from uh, the original film because she's got ruby slippers and they sent her back to Kansas and she lost them. Uh, nobody believes her. She still thinks about Oz. She still kind of sees Oz. <laughs> we are led to believe like that... PTSD. Yeah. Major, <laughs> major PTSD. She maybe has, like, psychosis. But if Piper Laurie Oz. is involved at any point in your oh child rearing, you know God. there's an issue. <laughs> well, I mean, there's. I'm, I'm like, there's your number one problem. <laughs> Auntie M is now Piper Laurie. <laughs> yeah. I can appreciate Piper Laurie maybe wanting to take a nice role, but she does not come off uh, great. Uh, but anyway, uh, Auntie M doesn't know what to do. Dor- Dorothy's so bad at helping with chores. It's, it's just weeks after the tornado too stuff is still kind of messed up so she to help dorothy sleep uh sends dorothy to an institution which may be a little darker than it seems i think to to forgive aunt m she does not understand the uh, horrors of electroshock therapy but when dorothy is about to be electroshocked suddenly uh, there's a storm and a little girl helps her escape a mysterious little girl uh she gets swept away uh in a river uh and wakes up back in oz with her uh favorite chicken bolina Voiced by Denise Beyer, who I think mm-hmm. most listeners would recognize as um, Hoggle and the Junk Lady mm-hmm. in Labyrinth. Mm. A much more annoying voice than I <laughs> uh, But yeah, so her and Belina get into usual Oz trouble. It's, it's it, like like any Oz thing. It's a very episodic thing. She eventually meets uh, TikTok, who is a wind-up uh, soldier of Oz. All of the denizens of Oz, the Emerald City is destroyed. The denizens are all turned to stone. She understands that there's this guy, the Gnome King, who seems to be responsible. And she goes uh, in searching for him in the hopes... Uh, that he can uh, restore Oz <laughs> in the hopes that some sort of despot is a reasonable guy who will just listen to her. Uh, and yeah, so she teams up with TikTok, Jack Pumpkinhead, eventually a weird sled made out of the head of something called a gump and a couch. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a moose. Yeah, yeah I think, it's like a green whole, moose. Like, contraption just called the gump? Like it's not just the head, yeah, it's maybe. like a whole contraption. Oh, I thought that the head was, oh, okay. uh, who knows? No, the whole, con- uh, I mean, he refers to himself in the third person as a yeah. gump. But I mean, it's anyone. <laughs> True, and, and it's uh, kind of an interesting movie because there's like a boss and a sub boss. Because the Gnome King is this big giant stone monster, uh, but then also there's uh, Princess Mombi, who's a a, a creepy witch. Yeah. 
who can fine. switch heads and, and really wants Dorothy's head. And, um, and like yeah. the MGM version you have where, you know, there's someone in Kansas who's a villain, mm-hmm. like um, Elvira Gulch. And then she, you know, the same actress portrays her, Margaret Hamilton, as the Wicked Witch of the West. Here we have like the evil nurse from this yeah. electric shop torture chamber is the real Princess Mummy. And you also and the, the doctor, doctor is, is the, the gnome king. king. Yeah. So, right. the, uh, I didn't her, catch that. Thank you. Her uh, nurse is the head wheeler as well. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. all, uh, I, I think it's the same. Interestingly, I see that credited to the movie, but I also, every um, play production I've seen does that. Yeah. All the people become the people. But yeah. And the actress is also the evil queen from uh, Willow, which yes. traumatized yes. me more as a child. I didn't grow up with this film, but Willow yes. scared the hell out of me. Yeah, Janet Marsh from Upstairs yeah. Downstairs. Who she's then great. People figured out, you know who's a great evil witch? <laughs> <laughs> um, and she still looks like she'd play a great evil witch if you ever need one. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's a strange movie. Uh, but like, uh, yeah, like Oz stuff, of course, you know, Dorothy triumphs. It's interesting to me, though, because I mean, uh, looking back on it, like, of course, everybody's familiar with the MGM version of it. That's like the definitive version. But there's versions yeah. before th- that as well, isn't there, mm-hmm. Alicia? Oh, yeah. There's like a, a dozen. This yeah. was, you know, obviously a story that was adapted almost from the beginning of narrative cinema. So as early as, you know, I think the first version would be a night. There's two versions made in 1910. One survives, one does not. But the one that does survive is um, a Selig film uh, called The Wonderful World of Oz. And it it's made without Baum's permission because Baum went bankrupt yeah. in the 19 odds. And then basically the rights to the wonderful world of Oz are auctioned off. Uh, and Sally buys them, makes that there's a second one in 1910. There's the patchwork girl of Oz from 1914, which is a different book. I actually, that's my favorite, mm. but the version that probably most people would know that predates the MGM is 1925's um, Larry Seaman version. The problem there, and maybe people don't know it, because I would really question whether this is screened in the last 10 years at any reputable film festival, silent or otherwise. It is one of the most racist depictions in silent films mm. history. Unfortunately, um, even for at the time in 25, people were like, what the hell? Like, it's it's a god-awful film. And so I think a lot of these versions don't get screened. They're they're all, I will say, though, as nightmarish and surreal, if not more so, as the film we're talking about today. It is terrifying because you, you, you add this old timiness of like 1910s or 1920s jankiness, add it to these characters in the story, and it's uh, total nightmare fuel. Oh, Books yeah. are inherently frightening, though. And even the MGM one, mm. I know my mom talking about when she first saw that when she was a little girl, she said the legs underneath oh, yeah. curling up scared the crap out of her. The like, flying yeah, monkeys, fair. I feel like, are a famous flying monkeys terrifying. everybody thing. Yeah. The death I mean, scene, it, yeah. too. Scary for little yeah. kids. Oh, I'm melting. Come on. Yeah. It's also one that is like, it, it did good when it came out, but it's kind of a fascinating one because it, it was a big television one where it would play like every Thanksgiving and so people could, it, there was a low barrier to entry for the MGM one. And it, it's interesting because Disney bought the uh, rights to the rest of the catalog quite soon after it and actually developed yeah. something called the Rainbow Road to Oz. But they balked because they got a little fearful for how classic the original was becoming due to television. I think that's a great point, Cam, because it's it's an it's often a misconception. Because of course, Gone with the Wind and was the Wizard of Oz are both released in 1939 from the same studio, um, MGM. Both at one point had Victor Fleming directing, and it's it's really important to point out that uh, basically Wizard of Oz failed commercially. Mm-hmm. 
1939 upon its release. It wasn't until a decade later when it was re-released in theaters in 1949 that MGM recouped a lot of its money. And a lot of that is because Judy Garland's stardom had evolved so much Mm. in that decade that people were going back to watch this film that ultimately, I mean, even reading some of the reviews like in Variety, this was not a film people liked. Um, And the budget was enormous. And we all know the mythology and the stories of actors, you know, getting lead poisoning. And it's a very troubled production. Um, And then, yeah, we were we are the we're a great generation in terms of the kids who born in the 80s who grew up with this on television and then in the home market. Having this on VHS was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was the case for generations before us. Well, that makes sense yeah. then for Disney to greenlight a sequel. Now, this development process took a long time, especially oh, yeah. because I think this was like 1980, 79, 80 yeah. is when they started the production. Um, at this point, of course, Walter Murch was enormous from like working on like Apocalypse Now, like big buddy of like Coppola mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sorry, also edited Captain Eo. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. <laughs> that is right. Which, but that would be a tough project. Which yeah. when you think about it, Google Images of Captain EO, there is a lot of imagery from Captain EO that makes its way into uh, the sure. Okay, that makes sense. Sure. Um, it's uh, yeah. So so they get so they get the big opening thing of they're like, okay, you can you can try your hand at it, but. Walter Murch, it needs to be clear, defends this movie to the end. This is exactly what he thinks it should be. He doesn't mm. understand why people think this is... He has ideas of why people think it's frightening, but he thinks they're wrong. Um, so <laughs> so that is... That's, that's interesting. Um, but the biggest thing he thinks people don't like about this movie is it's not a musical. He thinks everyone I disagree. came in... Well, it, uh, agreed. But it's... Could you ever ever make oh, anything I do, that can compete do you know what i mean i agree with him though that i think he would have been able to get away with the plot that he has a lot easier if it was a musical oh. but the whiz is really like, scary like the whiz is a musical sure. and we did that on the podcast yeah, but the and whiz, i still think, I think about the whiz that subway is sequence. crazier than this yeah yeah like i i, I think a lot of the scares in this are not that wild but i don't think the whiz is meant for dancing. kids the whiz, whiz is for mm. adults right it's the intended audience yeah, i mean the whiz is weird because it's yeah full adults doing stuff and telling adult jokes and things. Yeah, we have a 38-year-old Dorothy in that film. <laughs> yeah. And then we have a nine, is she nine, She's nine. nine or ten, which is yeah. the age that she is in the books. Like when Judy mm. Garland played her at 15, 16, that was a complete inaccurate. That was a big thing that Walter Murch wanted. And that's the other thing he said is he's like, I think that's the reason why a lot more people were really upset by it is because she's so young. And Feruja Balk, we should say, this is Feruja Balk's, like, not her first role. She'd actually been in film and television, like, since she was, like, three or something like that. But she is excellent in this. And so you do, and she's Mm. doing all of her own stunts at nine, including yeah. the water stuff, including the stuff where they harness her up and drop her. Like it's it's wild when you watch all the back uh, the behind the scenes footage because there's one scene where like they drop her and she yeah. lands in the thing and she goes, "Do we have to do it again?" Yeah, that, was, and, that was a bit and sad. And one of the stunt guy say. comes over. And he's like, "No, baby, no, baby, you're done." And yeah, I'm just yeah, like, yeah. "Oh man." Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I mean, it's very interesting because obviously Feruza Balk went on to be like famous for being kind of the bad girl and to see her play like just an innocent so well. And I think she also like it sublimates the Judy Garland Dorothy a bit in her performance in a way that nobody else is really trying too hard to be that she's also not twee really well. i think that's the other thing is she no. plays like she's not annoying and you believe like this unlike blind the wish in the wardrobe which we discussed last season you believe she's <sighs> capable of being a badass whereas those kids you don't believe they can do it yeah what i also get from her is i get it i mean this harkens back to an earlier point but that ptsd that that true yeah. terror that psychosis 
is there in her character. And as much as I think, you know, young audience members will be terrified of some of the elements of this film, I get that from Feruza Balk's performance, that she is equally terrified. Uh, and it's just so different than Judy Garland, who's sort of, you know, upset when the monkeys carry her off or whatever. It was just like, this is true terror. It's just true, uncontrollable, uncontestable um, hellscape yeah. that she finds herself in. And, and there's no singing. There's no yellow brick road. There's no technicolor. Yeah. There's no fluffiness. Well, and everything we uh, loved is destroyed. Like the minute you yeah. get to Oz, there's nothing there for her. And even with, yeah, everything she, and all of, you know, the lion, the tin men, these are all turned to stone. It's very, uh, actually C.S. Lewis to come back to Narnia, but also like things in Kansas are not good. Like they're going to lose the house because they, they've over mortgaged it and they don't have the money to fix it. And, um, even like her uncle is like, has elements of PTSD, Mm. like just her life is about what you would expect, um, from, you know, a rural Kansas orphan being raised by elderly aunt and uncle who are economically you know at the bottom of the pile it's worth saying uh walter merch again in one of his crazy things said he was heavily uh, inspired by the book wisconsin death trip which if you've read and seen it is like depressing photos of wisconsin there's a great documentary of it that comes and goes out of uh rights hell so but uh, yeah it's weird and then he also shot it with the the gentleman who would go on to win an oscar this year for out of africa which is Mm -hmm. kind of wild so it's like a very drab uh you know uh miserable looking place in oz and it becomes this weird thing where she's unlike the last film where it was all about trying to get home this one is her being very torn between wanting to stay in oz and uh, dealing with the realities of home. And they, yeah, he yeah. talks about it, that this being about defending your dreams in the face of everything. And I'm like, is, mm. is it? <laughs> is that what this is about? Um, it sounds like he was having some issues as well at the time. So like we mentioned, this was a oh, long yeah. development process. Um, it got taken away from him a couple of times and give it back. Then they, when he was going like, I think some like 10 or $15 million over budget on paper at one point. So they brought in Paul Meslansky, who I guess was known for the Police Academy series of movies. Mm. Um the reputable franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's Academy. probably cheap. Yeah, exactly. It was cheap and, and, and I'm sure made a ton of money. So he showed up and managed to like cut the budget way down. And that's when uh, Gary Kurtz left the project, who was mm. uh, who had worked a bunch on Star Wars and Dark Crystal, Crystal etc. But he talks about how he knew something was wrong when tonally when they started filming the scenes in the institution and how dark everything was. And oh, like yeah. seeing the machine that they were going to hook Dorothy up to. He's like, this is where the red flag started going off for me. Um, and then apparently Walter Murch also just got so overwhelmed by the directorial duties um, that like by day one or by day three, they were five days over the shoot time already. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's worth saying that you I, I do think that the end product is, is pretty amazing. Agreed. And like this, the effects are amazing and it looks great. But when you hear number one, you hear even Roy Disney in interviews say that the big problem with that Disney had at the moment was things were going way over schedule and way over budget. And when you read about the development of this film, it was actually a lot more ambitious than it came out. So like it was going to be shot in Algeria and Italy Mm -hmm. and I think America, and it ended up just being shot in England. Uh, If you look at the stars, like there's nothing wrong with the cast. I think everyone in the cast does a great job, but like the Gnome King was offered to Christopher Lloyd and Tim Curry. Uh, Princess Mombi was like Louise Fletcher, Terry Garr and Mary Steenburgen. Um, Dick Van Dyke was apparently approached for Jack's Pumpkinhead or the Scarecrow. So it's like, 
yeah they obviously cut they were doing cuts all over the place because this is mostly actors you would not know outside yeah. of like british theater and television uh, yeah i don't know it feels like they just got frustrated with it at a certain point in its development yeah. stage and they had this property that they kind of had to go forward with because yeah. the rights were going to lapse and it was going to go into public domain. And this was, and it, it actually did by the time it was 1985, mm-hmm. but they had to put the Disney stamp finally on the Wizard of Oz so they could have it in the future, which comes in handy when you're doing, for instance, the Muppet version of Wizard of Oz yeah. because they can still come back to the original. I did find it really interesting that, and I don't know if they knew they would have to do this at the time, but in order to use the ruby red slippers as part of the story, yeah. They had to actually pay an enormous mm-hmm. fee to MGM because that was an element that MGM put into the story that was never there in Bomb's original. It's it's silver shoes and they kind of have different powers. Um, here you see that sort of distilled in one of the belts or something like that. Yes. In uh, this version, yeah. but yeah, and the, you know these shoes, which I love that Feruza Balk kind of only recently at a convention mentioned she does still have a the one pair. There was like mm. two pairs made. She has one. That makes me so happy. Um, but that element of just blending you know, nearly a century, just shy of a century of popular cultural conceptions of this tale is, is I think, fascinating. I don't think I like this film. I never grew up with it, but I yeah. actually respect this film. I yeah, watched it yeah. last night and was like, damn, like to go that dark, to go that depraved and subversive and surreal as a Disney film. It reminds me a lot of like Something Wicked This Way Comes, which you brought up, Becky. Sure. I applaud this because we know what comes after. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I, I was very terrified in the in the Mombi sequences, all the moving heads. Like that is... Yeah, yeah. May I uh, say that it occurred to me, and I, this was kind of um, inspired by something I read and it made my mind sort of spin, but I was thinking about my favorite adaptations of Wizard of Oz that aren't really Wizard of Oz. And I think one of the ultimate is Wild at Heart, mm-hmm. David Lynch's film. To me, do you think David Lynch was watching this movie when he made Mulholland Drive? Because there is a lot. Oh, yeah. Quite possibly. I mean, there's a lot of Mulholland Drive yeah, here. I think that there's a lot of, yeah, like stuff that people took for other things. I mean, I'm also fascinated. I know, Becky, you'd briefly considered uh, maybe putting a highlight on Will Vinton's, uh Tales of Mark Twain, mm-hmm. and he does all the Gnome King stuff here, and yeah. it reminds me of that weird Satan sequence. It's the same so year, I'm, man. I'm like, it's just wild. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's the, the same style of creepy face animation, like really terrifying stop motion stuff. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of inspiration. I think the real problem with the film to me is it's real slow. Mm. Considering it's a lot of fun stuff happening, each sequence is like, and it's wild from Walter Murch, who's like famous for editing. I mean, uh, he there's a great we studied in school. He he and uh, Michael and Dace have a wonderful book together where they mm-hmm. talk about editing uh, the English Patient because he famously swooped in and saved that movie from. Uh, not functioning at all. So he also re-edited yeah. Touch of Evil to mm, Orson mm-hmm. Welles's specifications long after Orson Welles had died. Um, and that is like when you watch Touch of Evil today, which is currently on Hollywood Suite, um, that is the version that you watch. Mm. It's, it's the approved version. The only version that Orson Welles would have ever wanted anyone to see without studio interference was redone by Walter Murch in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And I also like the fact that, uh, you know, it does sound like it was a very miserable experience 
for him. And I think like some people you hear, he just, it's not that he never went on to direct because this killed his career. He just went like, nope, I don't like that. But it's also, um, I think like the special effects in this are yeah. amazing. They still look fantastic. Yes. Like the mommy oh, yeah, heads yeah. works. And yeah. that's why like, it's not yeah. cheesy. It's yes. just scary. And I think it's, it's crazy limitations too. Cause I mean, yeah, you have some like half robotic, half not. And I mean, the other thing to think with all these special effects is for the craziest special effect to have is a, a child of that age who can only work three and a half hours a day who's yeah. in almost every scene so it, it that's also a, a bizarre uh limitation but yeah they did so much and yeah each of the puppets like tiktok and uh pumpkinhead jack neither of these are a person in a suit yeah. <laughs> these are like crazy elaborate effects so it does really hold up in that regard and, and you kind of do i don't know and i i definitely never fault anyone going for oz because it's like oz is the um, like now mostly public domain franchise that nobody has properly exploited <laughs> really uh yeah but also no one can figure out what to do with it. I think that's the biggest issue. So like there's like the the one, sure. Alicia, I think you were just about to bring up, which is um, the one with uh, James, uh, what's his namey, who we shall Frank not speak knows. of. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know, th- that one. We still have to say his name so people yeah. know <laughs> what we're talking about. Uh, and I mean, like the, the new, um, uh, the one with Alpha. The Great Wicked and Powerful is, yeah, Oz is the one you mean. Wicked is yeah. coming out. That's a, that's a big property. That's coming yes. out in the musical version for film. Like, so... I think that's the closest anyone's figured it out, but that is for yes. adults. Like even the book is for adults. It's and, not and for people children. Just the Muppet freaking... version. The Muppet sure. version, I have to say, <laughs> is pretty good. Of course you love the Muppet version. And there's a version I haven't seen, but I'm not sure if we're familiar with this. 1972, I believe it's called Journey to Oz with Liza Minnelli. I mean, why not, uh, yeah. right? Well, that makes all and the it's, sense and in the it's, world. it's a huge animated ripoff of Robin Hood because like the lion right. looks... The sale of Robin, what year's Robin Hood? I, anyway, I think it's like uh, that will be next on my yeah. list. It's, it's like eighty-two. I will or say that if you guys want a bonkers one, uh, a favorite of the podcast, Tarsum Singh tried a gritty television reboot called Emerald City. Which now that's actually, the guy who could have done yeah. it. I feel like. Yeah, I think his, he didn't quite have the budget he needed, but uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is the wizard. Oh. Uh, it, it had oh, no. it no, had no, no. a trans uh ozma so Good. like it, it it cued close to the books but it was a bit of an insane uh, like mgm has just sort of ruined the story for us i mean that, that seems so insane to mm. say because what a canonical classic most beloved film of all time wizard of oz but it ruined yeah. bombs i think original story by distilling it too much by omitting so much that now we can't accept anything well else. and sanitizing is the other thing right because you can't think of it as anything but like somewhere over the rainbow like that how do you mm. how do you, yeah and everyone will be like you've made the gritty version and you're like it is the gritty version the original version is the gritty yeah. version yeah, yeah like sometimes it, yeah, home sucks yeah. like there's no place yes. at home i'm sorry look at dorothy's home why are you trying to go back there <laughs> well i Get- think the thing is in 19 <laughs> oh whatever probably being at a farm was nice <laughs> but now we're all like oh a farm there's nothing here for you love of a family yeah i don't know Dust it's it's, coming. It, it's tough because it's like i respect this for not wanting to acknowledge the old one but i do think it might have just done better if you if you paid for more than the ruby slippers and just kind of went with it the muppets acknowledged the 39 version in a very appropriate way <laughs> oh, sure. oh good so what you're saying is people should go watch the muppet version but are you recommending people watch this one do you think people should oh boy um <laughs> i would advise parents to think 
long and hard if this is appropriate for children under the age of 10? Uh, my small person is eight and my small person, I showed them pictures and they went, yeah. I'm good. No, I'm good you. for now. <laughs> they, they were fascinated. This is interesting. And I think, I think this also leads into Walter Murch talking about how he had loved these stories when he was five or six. And when I was telling my partner about some of the stuff that happens in this that I had forgotten had happened, my little person mm. was listening in and they were like, this sounds incredibly cool. Can you tell me more about this and can I watch it? So I think there's something about the imagination versus the reality yeah. of it that makes it something totally different. I also wonder mm. if if you just skipped the opening, mm. uh, you know, just d- mm-hmm. d- have it be in Oz. I know people find the wheelers very scary, but they're a little goofy, too, if you if you just sit with them. Yeah, I almost wonder if, like, the kids who love Nightmare Before Christmas would love this. Because, of oh, course, yeah. Jack Skellington, Tim Burton has talked about how Jack yeah. Skellington was inspired by Pumpkinhead. Um, but you know, if you have one of those little macabre kids, like I was sure. running around, um, you know, obsessed with Victorian culture, uh, maybe they'll love this. Maybe, sure. um, I would definitely want to have a conversation about how we don't electroshock humans anymore. We do. Oh, we a, do. Actually, it's back, it's baby. just, it's yeah. just, yeah, we figured out how accurate. to do it. <laughs> yes. yes. We don't yeah. willy nilly electroshock right. people. Well, we, for do we fun. do that to children? I don't think so. Maybe. I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not a medical professional. Do not take this yes. as medical advice. I just do I just know, know that it, it has come back into favor for certain treatments. That is correct. All right. Nice. On that note, so we talk about a movie with very for, intended for very very small children, which is also about sure. home and family. That's follow that bird coming up after the break. For our second movie today, we're looking at a debut feature for someone who is recognizable across the planet. He's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and you definitely notice him on the street because he's eight foot two. He's one big bird. In fact, he's Big Bird. And in 1985, he left his home on Sesame Street to be with his new family, and producers hoped that a big bird would mean big box office. We're going to find out how that turned out. It's a movie, according to my mother, I saw when I was three and was inconsolable at the sight of a big bird in a cage. Alicia, I know this one is meaningful for you as well. So uh, let's follow that bird. Yes, let's follow that bird into utter despair. <sighs> so um, sad. Oh, God. The reason this is so special is because it, it. I watched it all the time. I wore out that. Uh, it was probably beta, really, or maybe I taped it off television. Mm. Um, I wore out that tape pretty quickly, probably multiple tapes. I watched this all the time as a kid, which watching it as an adult, as a you know woman sliding into 40, I cannot imagine what appealed to me as a child because it was so, I mean, I do know I loved, I've loved Sesame Street, like every kid, I loved it so much, but like it was, it's very terrifying. It's very upsetting. I felt re-traumatized from like 35 years ago, just watching big bird in a cage and he turns blue and he's crying and he's 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 locked up kind of in a Pinocchio vibe you know when they take Pinocchio to the yeah what's yeah it's not good Stromboli is a strong I can't remember who does yeah Um, it's Stromboli yeah but the story of this is um it's 1985 and this is the going to be the first kind of Sesame Street feature film. And it remains the first Sesame Street theatrical feature film for many, many years until Elmo and Grouchland, which I think is the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a film that was really um, kind of conceptualized as bringing the world of Sesame Street and expanding it specifically to Toronto, (laughs) where it's filmed in thereabouts. I will talk more about that in a second, but uh, because I think it's really fascinating. So we have a situation where there's this um, board called the Feathered Friends uh, Board of Birds. Awful, 
they I guess they're supposed to mean well, but they realize that there's this bird living in New York City on Sesame Street um, that is without other birds. And so they take they try to like coax him away from his Sesame Street family and place him with um, the Dodos, uh, a family of birds in Illinois who are they're not they're not abusive. They're just bad. They're just dumb dumbs. They're dumb dumbs uh, and they're they're just a really bad fit and they don't listen. And I think yeah. I think that yes. development to those characters is so smart because how else would you mm. make yes. it so that they're not abusive but they're not a good fit? And Big Bird realizes they're not a good fit when they kind of encourage him to not think of Snuffleupagus as his best friend yeah. anymore and that he should only be associating with birds and not associating with people and other monsters and, you know, a, a green monster that lives in a garbage can and things like that. Um, and he runs away. And the thing about Big Bird is he, it's it, you have to remember he's a six-year-old, like, and he has the mind of a mm. six-year-old. And running away was is perilous and he gets caught up with SCTV people um, although they're not playing SCTV people but they basically are SCTV people and they they lock him up in a circus and they turn him into a sideshow and and then all of Sesame Street finds this out um, from the news and they go after and they find him because he's family and they they go to find him so they can bring him back to his home his real home and, and his family and his nest and mm-hmm. Snuffy and his you know Radar, his teddy bears along for the ride. I'd forgotten about Radar entirely, that Big Bird had a, a teddy. I'd forgotten that Oscar the Grouch is carried around by a trash man that's yeah. also performed He's by also Bruno. In my books, I, I, I noticed a lot of characters the from the books, Bruno and the and the main kind of antagonist. She she would show up now and again because there wasn't really Sesame Street antagonists. So Miss Finch, <laughs> it's good yeah. to have a, scary. Yeah. Like she's, I remember her really frightening. Because <laughs> her when eyebrows I was a kid. go angry. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's um, voiced by Sally Kellerman. This mm. this film has a lot of Brewster McCloud vibes. <laughs> sure. uh, please, the best double bill I can ever think of in my little curatorial brain is "Follow That Bird," followed by Brewster McCloud. <laughs> uh, both of them have oh both of them about big giant birds. Both sure. of them have Sally Kellerman. Both of them are road movies. Mm-hmm. Please, somebody give me both a stage so I. Downbeat, <laughs> weird. Yeah. All right, so we should say this movie was a massive failure at the box office. Not, not massive. It was not not massive. It was pretty bad. No, Becky. It was bad. No, I mean only if you're like, only if you want to quadruple your profits. Like it, only it, if it, you're Hollywood. <laughs> it's considered it a flop. Made, it's considered a flop. It made a ton of money yeah. on the home video circuit, which is where it would, because like if you're mm-hmm. taking like a three-year-old to the theater, you're a nut, yeah. right? Like, but it's also opening again. So it opened the same weekend as Weird Science and Fright Night and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, Back to the Future and so The Black Cauldron were still on screen. Um, mm-hmm. And they had just reissued E.T. Gremlins and Ghostbusters. So it's like if you're yeah. taking your kids into something that you all also want to sit in like Mm -hmm. there's just like a saleability issue there right i mean it's also just i think it's uh, what they aimed at you know the the sesame street main audience is not an audience that is often marketed to you know it's uh the oogie loves and the big balloon adventure it's not a movie that most parents want to sit through even though i do think that this movie does a, a fair job catering to parents and almost laughed, if anything yeah. there's really good jokes in here. yeah if anything i think the jokes are not <laughs> like there aren't enough stuff that would delight a kid you know i, I know the kids obviously just love seeing muppets do things and stuff but i kind of wonder if there's enough of that chaotic 
kind of silly energy that children enjoy. And I think that I'm, I'm actually with you, Cam. And I think part of the issue is because of the theme of this movie and what they're dealing with, which is like sure. chosen family as well as ideas of segregation and stuff like that. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, that's true. These are... The segregation is just kind of touched it, on. It, it is, like, but oh. like they keep talking about your own kind. And that is yes, like a, yes. oh boy, big hot button thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think something we kind of forget about Sesame Street is like from its inception in 1969 that it was doing remarkable things, subversive things that no one had ever done before around children and these issues. And you know, thinking about like, well, Sesame Street didn't kill off Mr. Hooper, but the actor who played Mr. Hooper died. And I don't think any other TV show would have actually shown Big Bird um, being told that Mr. Hooper wasn't coming back the next day and trying to make Big Bird and his friends understand death. Well, they often used Big Bird for those things because Big Bird is six years old. So yeah. Big Bird mm-hmm. is approximately the same age as these children, right? He was right? conceptualized as the sounding board, right, for for that child audience. I don't know. Like, I think this, fil- I really applaud this film for taking on what it does. I don't, I agree with both of you. I don't think it's 100% successful, but I think it's more successful than not. Mm. In that, Agreed. like, I'm, when they find him, when they rescue him and he's brought back to Sesame Street and, I, as an adult, same as I did as a child, feel such incredible relief and such love and such comfort. And with the possible exception of the two men who put him in the cage, which are Joe Flaherty and Dave Mm -hmm. Thomas, there's no real villain here other than circumstance, other than also social forces. Like this is a social worker coming in and taking a child out of an urban setting, the only setting that he knows, and putting him in this like ridiculous suburban very and that it, it's interesting because that was a last minute change to they the original shooting script actually involved the rest of the board coming and seeing Sesame Street and and keeping her kind of the villain Miss Finch and they decided that it was better to to make her realize it herself so that there was no real uh, villains and I mean you even get to see that Joe Flaherty and Dave Thomas are on hard times they just need anything to save their fun fair. In fairness to like Joe Flaherty's character, when Big Bird sings, um, he, so he turns blue yes. out of sadness. It is Ugh. one of the most traumatic things I've ever seen in a children's film, and he sings this. Incredible he's painted song. blue, isn't he? Did they paint him? Oh, blue? they paint. Yeah, the, they yeah, paint him. They, the, paint they paint him blue because he's the blue bird to, of happiness. To hide him. Well, yes. Why does he have blue yes. tears then? Because I think the paint gets in it. Because the paint's <laughs> yeah. running. Yes, that's why. No, I think he turned blue from sadness. Okay. He might have also been painted. <laughs> but I'm just saying. Uh, when he sings, you know, that song, it's it's even Joe Flaherty, who's like holding the kind of the spotlight on him, it starts bawling yes. his eyes. Yeah, out. yeah. Well, I think I think they make Joe Flaherty just like the dumb goon. He he's not mean. He's he's just uh dumb. I mean he's like Cookie Dave Monster. Thomas he has the cookies. Yeah, Dave Thomas is yeah. bad. I am not the only one who has pointed this out. This is a very similar premise to the Muppet oh, yeah. movie. So then well, the question yeah. becomes, like, did they think that this was, like, they would just translate the one format to the um, other? I, I heard a great thing, because you, you kind of were like, why, you know, and why is Pee-wee like this? Why, why do things yeah. expand into a road movie like this? And I saw a great uh, commentary on it, <laughs> credited to Unknown, which is that road movies are existential films. So they're, they're saying mm-hmm. that if you want to expand a character, um, 
it's exploring that character by putting something on the road instead of a fixed setting you are focusing directly on the character but then they also obviously it's easy then to make a bunch of vignettes as this movie is and as the muppets are and yeah and, and silly cameos even it makes though sense why someone would only be in the film for two yeah, minutes yes it's also great for uh yeah puppets and stuff because you could just do different setups and get in and out <laughs> yeah it's, it's muppet 101 i mean sure this is just like the muppet movie it's a different goal even though the Muppets really do realize that they've always had each other the whole time and that's what home is um, but you know then you just transport that Muppet movie to London and it's the great Muppet caper then you transport it to Manhattan and it's the Muppets take Manhattan like you just, which it's, Manhattan is the year before this which is my favorite Muppet so movie good. of all time it's so yep. good um, you got the, the diner run by rats it doesn't get better than that uh, I don't or think there's a movie that's more influential better on than a <laughs> grouch diner run by Paul Bartel and Sandra Bernhardt okay do kids <laughs> love Paul Bartel mm-hmm. I loved the sequence so this is why I think Follow That Bird is really successful is I as an adult laughed quite a bit and it's not cheap laughs like it's really endearing and you know Oscar seeing this like roads it's called the don't drop in um yeah you know hotel and like diner and he just he kind of pops his head in there's all these like this food fight with Mm. paul bartel and all of these other grouches including grungetta which is his like girlfriend and sandra bernhardt yeah (laughs) grumpy grumpy sandra bernhardt i mean i uh in researching this and digging hard because number one the thing that shocked me that i guess i never understood watching sesame street is that oscar the grouch is in love with maria (laughs) which i did not get he calls her skinny skinny, uh, and he goes (laughs) at one point ah an angry face in a beautiful place when they're in a junkyard uh and uh, but i love to see that apparently cut from it was uh oscar the grouch saying a love song to Maria when their tire blew out and she was like covered in dirt and destroyed. He sang uh, I want to see that answer uh, I know. I don't think they shot it even. I think it was cut before they shot but yes, there was meant to be (laughs) even more focus on Oscar as Maria gets more and more beat down (laughs) falling in love with her more and more. Can we just say that somehow all of these Muppet characters have the sweetest rides? Oh, I mean it's also like a a wacky races Muppets in a biplane. Yeah, mad mad world. Uh, vibes. I mean, I love, even though it's a regular car, I love Cookie Monster slowly eating the car that Gordon has. He eats all the leather seats. <laughs> I love the Count's incredible oh, yes. like, Transylvanian coupe. I love that we have Ert, Bernie and Ert. Oh my god. Ernie. Don't cut that out. Bernie and Ert. <laughs> yes. Uh, Ernie and Bert uh, in a biplane flying upside down, which had Frank Oz and Jim Henson actually mastering. You know, every like Muppet movie. I think it's Muppets Take Manhattan where they ride the bikes, Mm. and like that was a huge. Which is sorcery. I don't know how they do it still. They they always challenge themselves with everyone. Mm. Was it Muppets Take Manhattan or was it London? I can't remember. Manhattan because they're going around Central Park. I think it's two of them but anyway well we see kermit on a bike standing on a bike and and him in uh him in the swamp in the first one is also famously uh, tough so there's always a challenge right and this challenge puts this north by northwest like hitchcock sequence and puts it in the laps of uh ernie and bert and they're you know going turling around in this plane it's it's wonderful it's also the last the like feature film performance of jim henson Mm -hmm. as um as ernie obviously there's only been one but also as kermit kermit's a reporter in this so it's 
you know, he would do it again, like, you know, he dies in 1990. So there's, there's sort of opportunities in that five years, but in terms of something on the big screen, this is the last one. I'll also say as a, uh, <laughs> I don't have a ton of Sesame Street history, but this is also an interesting point in Sesame Street because this is right before 1985 was when they decided to no longer make Snuffleupagus imaginary because they got worried yeah, yeah. about children being groomed by pedophiles and lying. So they wanted to encourage children to tell the truth. Uh, and not being believed yeah. by adults that when you tell adults something that they don't believe yeah you. so it's kind of interesting to see that that side of snuffleupagus still on screen because you're like no snuffy <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, snuffy. Snuffy. do you remember snuffy uh, like alice wasn't there his little sister alice oh yes well? it's a big eye so because i kind of yeah. sense that alice might have been real but snuffy wasn't which is very confusing <laughs> yeah i i think alice came along later yes That's and, and by the time uh, snuffy was real uh yeah. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, seeing all these all the the members of the street and stuff is so crazy like and ones that you haven't seen in a while. Um it, yeah. it just touched me so much to see a lot of forgotten muppets um, that deserve, <laughs> sure. you know, deserve and you also see a very early Tully, lots of Tully. Tully. Yeah. Tully. Yeah, Tully. Oh I love God. Tully. Tully's the best. Um okay, so we need to talk about um the Toronto connection here because they rebuilt Sesame Street in a larger form in a studio in Toronto. I believe Toronto Studios is where they built it. But what were they doing in Toronto, Alicia? You know this. You're like mm, Muppet yes. experts. Um, they had all. They had never left Toronto. I mean, Jim Henson's relationship to Toronto goes back to the late 1960s when he filmed Hey Cinderella, uh, which is a Cinderella, Cinderella story starring Kermit, technically Kermit's first feature film, um, here in Yorkville in, in 1969. And from then on, he developed kind of a relationship with the CBC and a lot of Toronto studios and Toronto artists and, and writers. And a lot of the productions that we kind of forget about in the Muppet Kingdom are Toronto. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, 1977. We're recording this in the annex, filmed down the street. Uh, Fraggle Rock during 1985 would have been filmed here in Toronto, in Yorkville. It's a CBC HBO co-production. So you have a lot of the Fraggle transports, kind of like people transplanted from the set of Fraggle Rock to this film, uh, which makes perfect sense. Um, so there was never a point really in, I mean, the Toronto relationship predates The Muppet Show. In fact, The Muppet Show at a certain point, the 70s version, um, was going to be filmed in Toronto. It ended up in the UK for funding reasons, for broadcast reasons, something. But we were originally going to have that as a show produced here. Mm. So follow that bird. I mean, I think one of my favorite Muppet productions ever is Muppet Family Christmas is where you have the Sesame Street, including Big Bird, where you, the, the chef tries to cook him for Christmas. In right. retrospect, that is very upsetting. <laughs> but where Sesame Street Just don't meets think about it the Muppets much. meets Fraggle Rock blows my mind. That's filmed in like Collingwood or Kleinberg. Mm. Um, so there was always Toronto and what it's interesting because there's other Toronto connections where you have like the animation house limited who did the animated sequence that opens this film. Oh yeah. Very cool. Fan animated sequences worth saying. Very cool. Um, mm -hmm. it ended up being bought by Anne Murray and then she like closed it oh. in 2002, which kind of huh. broke my heart a little bit, but, um, and then you also have, yeah, like just, I, I love the idea of how many Muppeteers were in Toronto from the 70s and 80s because you do hear stories about people kind of going to the pilot which is a bar that still exists mm -hmm. in new yorkville um after work and under the table if you looked really closely you would just see people's bags with muppet legs like, sticking <laughs> out and like muppet clothes um but you know it makes sense that he would film it here it's not a canadian film i don't want to give no. anyone that 
you know, misconception, although there are major Canadian artists on this, including Carol Spear. And if anyone, maybe people are not familiar with the name Carol Spear, Carol Spear was the art director on this film. So she would have been filming this while prepping um, The Fly. She's Cronenberg's art director of choice, still is, has worked with Cronenberg for almost the entire of his career. And then when she's not working with Cronenberg, she's doing The Muppets. She did The Muppet Family Christmas. Same with Eleanor Rose Galbraith, who is the set decorator on this film. Goes on to The Fly. Goes on to Dead Ringers. Here's my question. How do you do a film like this while also keeping Dead Ringers in your brain? Oh, yeah. Because of the deep complication of both of those things. Like, this is an incredibly (laughs) gorgeously designed set, right? Like, Sesame Street is real. It looks amazing. So does, like, so does the Grouch Diner. Like, all of it's incredible. Dead Ringers and The Fly look amazing amazing they are both mm. incredible set de- decorations like it's just someone who's very good at their job Cronenberg and Muppet um, in terms of a Canadian context are on parallel track. oh and I mean it's also like probably <laughs> that seems like a cakewalk once you don't involve Muppets if I know anything about the puppets yeah. once you're not dealing with that um, yeah it's 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 great and I think it's worth saying as well that this is a, a very early film from uh, TV slash children's fave director Ken Quapis which is interesting. Talk about Ken Quapis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's he's so interesting to me. His wife is Marisa Silver, mm-hmm. who is um, a filmmaker who I, uh, author more so now, but filmmaker who I love. And her mother is Joan Micklin Silver. So he's part of this incredible, like he's, you know, his mother-in-law was Joan Micklin Silver. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's such an interesting filmmaking dynasty. There's not many people who are just like talented children's directors. Uh, he, he does all sorts of stuff. It's worth saying. He's like uh, one of the great, TV comedy directors people don't Did know a lot of the office a lot of Malcolm in the middle Bernie Mac stuff like that but also like this uh you know sisterhood of the traveling pants like he just kind of <laughs> often wakes Beauty up and the beautician oh yeah Be- beautician of the beast beautician <laughs> yeah the beast. that's a fun one it's in, yeah he would have been so young yes um, just out of film project, school and he he was essentially handpicked by Jim Henson and Jim Henson had an incredible knack for just finding talent. And, you know, I think Ken Kwap has kind of pointed out to Jim that, you know, I, I've never worked with puppets before. Uh, I've never worked with specifically puppeteers. Mm-hmm. And Jim's advice was just treat them like actors. And that's all he did. Is yeah. He didn't think of it as a Muppet movie, although it obviously is. And he didn't think of it as this like puppet centric film. He treated it as a film with characters that everyone knows and loves that are real and have story arcs and personality. And I think that's why as much as maybe you two are saying it's not super successful to me it is I, i'm not saying it's a bad film i want to be very clear i just think it was received incorrectly yeah. like really i just I, 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 poorly if i had to guess. oh yeah i think people said it came out at a bad time uh but i also think i mean i think if you put any modern kid down in front of it they wouldn't pay attention to it whatsoever it's like I did, the, I don't know. the pace I don't know is is rough and i just don't think it I think it's it's it doesn't quite hit that appealing to adults and kids. Uh, the other thing I think, and we've we've banged this on other things, is the music isn't as good. True, they're not. Bad. I don't know. I'm. Is it? What's the song? I'm so blue. That's a. I mean, I get that stuck in my head. It's good, and I like um, an upside down world. But that's like, but I can't like I can. Rainbow Connection is in my head immediately as soon as I saw it. I'm like, bam! Right? How There's do nothing you in here. Something to the Rainbow Connection. Well, because it's also a Jim Henson related property movie. That's how you compare it. Come it's on, one of the greatest songs ever written for film. Like. <laughs> You can't all. And, you can't and there's have none of the They should have called none of Paul those Williams here. for yeah. this. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Paul <laughs> Unfortunately, Williams didn't work much on Sesame Street. That's interesting. 
You know, who did right. work on this, which I think is hilarious, is when they were trying to find a cinematographer, they looked at to the films of Peter Greenway and specifically the Draftsman's Contract and got their cinematographer, um, mm-hmm. Curtis Clark, from that. And I think that might be why this film looks so beautiful, is that you have Peter Greenway's like resident cinematographer working on Sesame Street. That's just wild. Okay, I think at that point we need to we need sure. to end this one. This was a good one, guys. I enjoyed this very much. And it was nice just to go and watch some it's been a it's been quite the season with all the genre pictures. So to go into some children's mm. genre pictures was quite nice. Um so Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I should also I feel like people should know that the the little girl who hangs out with Big Bird uh, is played by Allison Court, who went on to be various things, including Lunette the Clown, uh, the voice of Jubilee on X-Men, the voice of Lydia Dietz on Beetlejuice. She's Canadian uh, children's royalty. Royalty, yeah. Wasn't there someone, there's another puppeteer here who created, who met her on this, yes. who created uh, I believe the woman the inside Miss Finch uh, is the creator yes. and also the doll puppet, yeah. Yeah, that's just yeah. wild. All right. <laughs> and Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I want to encourage everyone to watch more bird films and maybe watch out for an all bird review that I produce and um, curate that will include Bruce <laughs> McLeod and follow that bird. And please send me your suggestions for what you would like to see in that retrospective. That sounds fantastic. They didn't make a movie of the Enchanted Tiki Room yet, have they? No, I have some horror stories related to my growing up in Anaheim and that uh, particular <laughs> that I will say for my onstage comments during this retrospective. <laughs> All right. And you can join us in two weeks where we're going to get physical. It's perfect and heavenly bodies. And we're going to be joined by the master of neon dreams, Brendan Ross. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.